Welcome to the History of European Theatre Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 89, Building Theatre, the earliest playhouses in London. Throughout the medieval period, the best records we have are concerned with religious drama. Theatre that was part of the mass, performed in the confines of the church and its grounds, and the public plays on religious themes performed for religious festivals. It's impossible to say for sure, but the chances are that these records leave us with a one-sided view. There's a lot of debate about when religious drama became public theatre and how much the cycle plays were performed as much for the financial benefit of a town as for the religious edification of the population. But at some level, we can suppose that there was a form of secular entertainment that existed alongside and somewhat intermingled with the religious drama. Since the end of the Roman occupation of England and Wales, theatre was something that was produced on the move or in spaces co-opted for the purpose. Primarily, theatre was produced by travelling players, young and lower level clergy and willing amateurs. But the wandering players, musicians and dancers, people who earned most of their income from entertaining, were always there, however undocumented. Playing spaces were the street corner, the village green, the courtyards of inns and any other appropriate space. Some entertainment went indoors, using the local magnate's feasting hall or communal facilities provided by the town council once the content of plays had been approved for their stages. I covered this in season three of the podcast, and it was the way of things for the best part of a millennia. In some places, away from the more cosmopolitan centres, entertainments were still provided only by travelling players and amateurs well into the 17th century but changes were afoot in the late 15th century that would combine with other changes in society to lead to a revolution in theatre. Theatre would, for the first time since the Roman period, have purpose-built and permanent homes. To backtrack from this point for a moment, by the early to mid-1500s, records show that there was a number of well-established troops of travelling players working in the south of England and particularly around the capital city, London. Some were required to perform at court for entertainments on special occasions or just at the whim of the king. Performances were still of religious plays, morality plays and the light entertainments that became known as interludes. This was still something of a hand-to-mouth existence. Players needed the permission of local magnates to perform and relied on attracting an audience through publicising their arrival and presenting plays that were attractive to the population. With changing religious sensibilities and difficulties in local tastes, a good reception was not always guaranteed. Travellers were still generally viewed with suspicion, and actors were thought of just above a notch above the gangs of robbers that made travellers' lives risky. But actors were also beginning to get some recognition. As early as 1480, the king, then Henry VII, was sponsoring a troupe of actors, and the travelling players were well established. They could work a known circuit of towns where they probably could expect a warm reception and have a good idea of the sorts of plays that particular town would permit and appreciate. Every troupe's experience was probably a little different and we have few records to give us much insight into the way they worked. A map of towns known to be on the medieval acting circuit shows towns as far west as Exeter and as far north as Newcastle and Durham, but the south, apart from London and Canterbury, is surprisingly underrepresented. The concentration of sites is in the Midlands and in the east of the country. The map is almost certainly incomplete, given the sparse records of the time, and the indication is that a visit from the players was a national phenomenon, 
but practised at a fairly local level. However, once permanent theatre buildings were established and land had to be purchased, profits and losses had to be recorded, and in some cases fought over, then we get some better records of what was going on. Not the inner thoughts of a troop leader or leading actor, but the record of the litigation of disputes. This may say a lot about human nature generally, it certainly says a lot about the Tudor mindset. Like the Romans before them, they were becoming a litigious society. The spread of education and the growth of trade were both factors in this feature of Tudor society, and the record of disputes gives us most of the documentary evidence that we have about the earliest theatres. But these records are still sparse and give us nowhere near a complete picture, just a small insight. So when and where was the first public permanent playhouse? Often, the theatre, built in Shoreditch just outside the City of London in 1576, is called the first playhouse, but there are a few earlier possible contenders for that honour. A mile outside the city, past the Allgate entrance, so what we call now Whitechapel, was a farmhouse called the Red Lion. Next to this, grocer John Brain built a playhouse in 1567, and so it became known as the Red Lion Theatre. The area had been associated with plays for a while already. The fields nearby at Mile End had been used for mustering militia in times of need and as a recreational area in quieter times. Plays had been performed there by travelling players. It was just the type of field where the scaffolds for the Castle of Perseverance could have been erected, or a booth stage on a wagon dragged into place in anticipation of the arrival of the players. There's a firm record from 1501 where players were paid three shillings and four pence for performance at Mile End by the treasurer to the King's Chamber but the site had probably been used for that purpose for decades before then. John Brain commissioned two carpenters for the project, one to build the stage, the other to build the stand for the spectators. Their agreement was that the building work would be completed by July the 8th, when a play called The Story of Samson was to be performed. That play is lost, as are so many from the early Playhouse period. The sad fact is that most plays never made it into printed versions, so only very few working copies ever existed and were easily lost. It makes it sound like people didn't care for their works, but I think that would be an unkind view to take. Printing was still a new technology and print runs were only commissioned when a profit was thought possible. Paper was also expensive and often reused, and copies kept to a minimum, so it's not surprising that copies didn't survive. And it's probably also true that plays were not seen as great works to be preserved for future audiences or readers beyond a potential revival if they were successful. That play, and maybe others, were performed in the incomplete theatre, and that July, Brain complained to the Carpenters Guild about the work on the spectator's scaffold, and the following autumn he complained to the King's Bench about the work on the stage. He sued the Carpenters for £8 and £13 respectively. These values suggest that it was not an elaborate construction, but unfortunately this is all that we know about the scaffolds. The stage is described in a little more detail because the performance bond, effectively Brain's agreement with the carpenter, was copied into the court records. The stage was 5 feet high off the ground, 40 feet deep and 30 feet wide. A tower rose above it to 30 feet, with space beneath it of 7 feet square. The tower doesn't seem to have had any practical purpose for the actors, but was perhaps to create a landmark or just a hangover from the towers that were built as part of some medieval stages. On the stage, 
there was a space left unboarded. The assumption is that this is for a trapdoor. Notably, there's no mention of a roof or areas for the actors to prepare, so perhaps the Red Lion was closer to a medieval acting space than a playhouse. Exactly what the resolution of the legal cases was is unclear, but the late pursuing of the case by Brain suggests that the issues were significant and that the Red Lion theatre project was probably short-lived. Whatever the case, Brain was not deterred. Nine years later, he turns up again in partnership with his brother-in-law, one James Burbage, on another theatre-building project. Our next contenders are all premises that in the 1570s, and probably a little before that, were used for theatrical productions, but by the late 1590s had changed their use to be inns, with no associated theatrical activities. The earliest of these is most likely The Belle Sauvage on Ludgate Hill, where audiences were enjoying plays before 1575. The Bull at Bishopsgate was regularly showing plays from at least 1577, and The Bell and the Cross Keys, two adjoining buildings on Lombard Street, were hosting players at about the same time, or maybe a year later. Unlike other playhouses, these were all within the City of London. Given the soon-to-come decisions about keeping theatre out of the city, this is surprising, but unfortunately we have no detail about who the owners of these businesses were, or how they managed to persuade the aldermen of the city to allow theatrical performances. It seems likely that they would have already been facing some objections to their presence in the city. The assumption is that the courtyard of the inn was used for the performances, with possibly a wooden stage being constructed for the purpose. At the Belle Sauvage there appears to have been a scaffold and a stage. In 1576, a writer notes that audiences paid one penny to enter the yard, another to go onto the scaffold, and a third to quit standing. In 1590, another record says that the stage there was high enough so that a person might be in danger to break his neck if he fell from it. The success of these sites is marked by the fact that the playing troupe The Queen's Men are recorded as playing at the Bell and the Bull in 1583, and the other leading troops, Lord Strang's men and the Lord Chamberlain's men, also performed at the inns in later years. But for all this, they may not have been entirely devoted to theatre and still functioned as inns while allowing players to perform. Three of the sites were consumed in the Great Fire in 1666, but the Bell survived until 1866 and was the last remaining playhouse from the Shakespearean period. Before the emergence of the public playhouses, there were a number of private playhouses in existence. These were theatrical spaces that were carved out of existing buildings not originally built for that purpose, and for private entertainment of guests. The architecture of such playhouses is uncertain and presumably varied depending on the space available. But a constructed stage, a tiring house for the actors and a relatively small space for the audience are thought to have been common features. This probably looked very much like the stages players visited in the great houses while on tour and belonged to that tradition. Although supposedly private, it's thought that touring players visited these establishments and in time they did accommodate paying customers. Probably they had to pay more than the penny required to enter the courtyard of inns, as they were protected from the elements and could enjoy the pleasures of a candlelit performance. One private playhouse that we know turned to public entertainment was the playhouse at the old St Paul's Cathedral. As a private playhouse, it used the skills of ten boys from the choir school for its company. The space used was the armoury, 
a second-floor room near to the cathedral choir and the nave of the church, used for the distribution of charity to the poor, and which was also the home of the choir master. There was a hidden passage that allowed the boys to move unseen from the choir to the private theatre, so it seems that it was an intrinsic part of the life of the cathedral. The stage area is described as small, and there are no details about the audience space. Performances by the boys go back into the medieval period, and there's a record from the Cathedral Grammar School in the 1520s. But for public performances, we can look to notices issued in December 1575 and December 1578 announcing performances by the choir boys. These don't specifically mention performances at the Playhouse, but the assumption is that this is the only place that the Cathedral boys would have performed. The last record of public performance by the boys is at the end of the 1580s. Then they performed three plays at court for Christmas in 1589 and in New Year 1590, and then there are sporadic references to further court appearances until 1606 when, without any specific reason, the boys appear to have stopped performing professionally. But this is about the time that performances by troops of boy actors seems to fall out of favour. From its later years, St Paul's was a significant contributor to the public theatres. The boys were associated with performances at Blackfriars Theatre for a few years, and the Cathedral Playhouse nurtured the talents of playwrights including Webster, Decker, Chapman and Johnson. So, regardless of exactly how private or public performances there really were, certainly worth a mention here just for that alone. And there is just one more of the earliest theatres to mention before we get to the theatre itself. Just a mile south of London Bridge, there was an inn called the Elephant and Castle. Next to this was a playhouse. There's still a pub of the same name in the area, now dominated by Waterloo Station, but I think not on the same spot. The area was known as Newington Butts, the name possibly referring to the archery training ground, known as the Butts, that used to exist there. This was well outside the city walls and at the southern end of Southwark, the area that would become very significant for the future of theatre in London. Some of the land in the area belonged to the Dean and Chapter of Canterbury Cathedral, and in 1566 a grocer who had become a yeoman of His Majesty's Guard, one Richard Hicks, leased the land from them for 60 years. Hicks took part of his leased land, a 10-acre field, enclosed it, and then built a tenement or messuage on it, so that's a dwelling place or a dwelling place with land and outbuildings associated with it. He then subleased the enclosed part to Richard Thompson for 19 years, who, five years later, further subleased the land for his remaining term to Jerome Savage. Savage was a leading player in the acting troupe sponsored by the Earl of Warwick, and who carried his name and wore his badge. The first recorded performance by these players is from February 1575, when they performed at the court. Back in Southwark, Savage signed the lease from Thompson in March 1576. Savage converted Hicks's buildings into a theatre, and it's possible that he did this even before the land was officially leased to him by some private arrangement with Thompson, which would put it in operation in 1575, before the theatre was opened. We know for sure that the Earl's men were performing there in May 1577, again from the details in the dispute. Hicks and his son-in-law, Peter Honingborn, tried to evict Savage, claiming, among other things, that he was, and I quote, a very lewd fellow, and liveth by no other trade than playing of stage plays and interludes. The action was not successful, 
But Honingbourne acquired the main lease and despite his apparent objection to plays and players, he was still allowing the site to be used for performances 13 years later. Although the Earl of Warwick's men disbanded before then in 1580, they were quickly reborn as the Earl of Oxford's men, although without Savage. At Newington Butts, the theatre continued but became less frequently used as years passed. The site was at the extremity of the Southwark entertainments and a more tedious trip from the city than the other playhouses. The last evidence of performances there is from June 1594, when the Lord Admiral's men stayed there for a ten-day run and recorded some of their least profitable performances. In July that year, the Dean and Chapter seemed to have decided that the Playhouse was an inappropriate activity on their land and arranged for the lease to pass to Paul Buck. He may have been associated with players, but a condition of the lease was that performances would cease there before the end of September. The next renewal of the lease in 1595 doesn't mention this condition or the playhouse, so we have to assume Buck had complied with it. And there is confirmation of this from 1599, when the playhouse on the site was no more and had been replaced by houses. The final note about the playhouse on the site comes from the Commissioner of Sewers in a comment about the need to cleanse and scour the ditches that served as the public sewer and for the general drainage of the area. This is typical of the sort of mundane notice from which fragments of information about the playhouses have to be gleaned. As with the inns, we have no details of the dimensions or layout of the playhouse at Newington Butts. In 1576, a joiner who had turned his hand to acting, James Burbage, started construction of a large building that he intended from the off to be a public playhouse. The site was just 500 yards outside of the northeastern wall of the city in the area called Shoreditch. The theatre opened later that same year, probably before its construction was complete. Burbage, who died in 1597, seems to have been the driving force in running the theatre for those 20 years. In 1535, his son Cuthbert reminisced about the project, calling his father the first builder of playhouses. This is the phrase that promoted the theatre to its primary position, but as we've seen, there was almost certainly some form of public playhouse in operation before the theatre was built. However, credit where it's due. The theatre was the largest building for the purpose, and probably the first truly purpose-built theatre in England since Roman times. Burbage clearly had a vision, was probably inspired by the earlier playhouses, and had the skills as a carpenter and an actor to make it happen. He obtained a lease from the land in Shoreditch in April 1576. The lease included some buildings, part of a former priory, and some open land where Burbage would build the theatre. The 21-year lease cost Burbage £20 and rent of £14 a year. However, a clause in the lease provided that if Burbage spent £200 on renovating the buildings on the site within 10 years, then he could extend the lease for a further 10 years. £200 was a considerable sum of money, but the inclusion of the clause suggests that Burbage was planning for the long term and was confident that his theatre would be a success. Despite that belief, it soon becomes clear that Burbage did not have enough money to finance his project, something that led to legal disputes, which in turn provides us with the details about the theatre. Early in the project, he co-opted his brother-in-law, John Brain, who had had the experience of building the theatre at the Red Lion into the project. Brain was to finance the building of the theatre in return for becoming a joint lessee. 
The plan was then that once it was opened, the theatre would pay its way and profits would go to Brain until any investment of his in the project over and above Burbage's investment was paid off. After that point, costs and profits would be split equally. At this time, family ties were paramount, even when relatives were acquired through marriage, and all the initial arrangements were made on trust. There was no signed document laying out these details as construction started, but we should not underestimate the bond of trust that would have existed between the brothers-in-law. Burbage was clearly over-optimistic about his finances, but both parties were happy to make their investment on the basis of the future success of the project and little else. Bain even spoke about leaving his share of the theatre to Burbage's children, his own four children having died in infancy. So it seems that, at the start at least, the project was a family business, forged in kinship and optimism. With hindsight, we can say, with maybe a little too much of both. Very soon, the finances went awry. The plan was to spend £200 on building the playhouse, but costs soon racked up to nearer £700. To continue the financing, they first borrowed money, then mortgaged the lease, and then Brain sold his house and business. Brain, his wife and Mrs Burbage all began working on the site to get the theatre built. It's no wonder that they needed to get the plays on and the paying audiences through the door as quickly as possible. Arguments about who had spent the money and what individual items had cost abounded between the two couples. Brain became concerned about the profits and his ability to collect them. Because Burbage had mortgaged the lease, it couldn't be amended to include Brain as a named party. So he gave Brain bonds that assured him that the proper action on the lease would be taken just as soon as the mortgage debt was paid. Brain accepted this, but could see his considerable investment slipping away. And he was right to be worried. As things turned out, those bonds were never collected on. There's a definite sense that both men were so invested in the project that they had to keep it running, despite the mounting debts. Bankruptcy was a shameful state at the time, with serious consequences, including long prison terms, so their desire to keep the project afloat is understandable. Brain also invested in the George Inn with a partner, although quite where he got the funds to do this is a mystery. His dealings in that project seemed to be equally reckless, and he died bankrupt in 1586. His widow was convinced that he had died because his partner at the George Inn, one Robert Miles, had struck him and she went to court to try and collect on Burbage's bonds. In a strange twist, Miles becomes her supporter in that case, and then a few months after her husband's death, she had another child. The Burbages became convinced that Miles was the father, and the two had probably conspired to murder Brain. The widowed Mrs Brain lost her legal battles in 1589. As Brain's name was never formally added to the mortgage, in reality she had little hope of success, especially as by then... Burbage had defaulted on the payments, and the lease now legally belonged to the mortgagee, John Hyde. It seems that Hyde's only interest was in getting his money, and was open to a deal with Burbage or Mrs Brain as long as they paid the overdue £30. It was Burbage's son Cuthbert who came to the rescue. He was in the patronage of an official in the Lord Chamberlain's office who he used to persuade Hicks to sign the lease over to him on payment of the outstanding debt. Cuthbert then argued that he owned the theatre outright, both his father and Brain having defaulted on the lease. Margaret Brain and her daughter died of plague in 1593, and she left all her goods to Robert Miles. He continued to fight in court for payment from the Burbages, but in a couple of years his cases were thrown out. 
He tried to revive it all in 1597, but soon realised that it was going nowhere and dropped the case. The final whimper on all these protracted legalities over the theatre. And did I mention that the Tudors loved a bit of litigation? Well, while all of this was going on, there was another strand of legal action that the Burbages had to deal with. You will remember that the original lease for the site was for £20 and rent of £14 a year, and included a clause providing that if Burbage spent £200 on renovating the buildings on the site within 10 years, then he could extend the lease for a further 10 years. In 1585, the original leaser, Giles Allen, refused to extend the lease by 10 years on the grounds that the tenant had not spent the required amount on the existing buildings within 10 years, and that he had, in other ways, been a bad tenant. In 1596, as the 21-year lease was running out, the Burbages tried to negotiate an extension with Allen. The parties continued to discuss options until James Burbage died in February 1597, when Cuthbert continued to negotiate with Allen, and as the lease ran out, Allen allowed renewal on an annual basis. Cuthbert Burbage and Allen went on discussing various options for 10- and 21-year leases, but Allen kept adding conditions. At one time he asked for £24 compensation, at another a guarantee that he would be able to collect rents in future without any trouble. He looked for £30 in unpaid rent and then demanded that the site be no longer used for the purposes of theatricals, but without specifying what he thought the site should be used for. Initially that idea was turned down but then entertained when Alan agreed that it could continue as a theatre for another five years. That agreement got as far as being drafted, but failed to progress when Allen added a demand for £100 for the other buildings on the site. Another draft lease was drawn up, dropping that demand, but adding a commitment to the lessee improving the existing buildings. Allen was also looking for a guarantor for the rent, and Cuthbert suggested his brother, the actor Richard Burbage. Allen rejected this outright, as well as the further suggestion that the playhouse would be permitted to operate for the full 21 years of the lease, not just the next five. I suppose we shouldn't feel too hard towards Allen and his apparent dislike of the theatre. Clearly he'd had some problems collecting rents from Burbage and would no doubt had a low opinion of him as a businessman. We don't know if he went to the theatre or not, but from his home in Essex he certainly would have heard about some of the trouble that had sometimes erupted there, which could have fed his dislike of the enterprise. Here's an example from June 1584, when William Fleetwood, the recorder of London, wrote to Lord Burley, principal minister to the Queen. He records that, Upon Wednesday, one Brown, a serving man in a blue coat, a shifting fellow having a perilous wit of his own, intending a spoil if he could have brought it to pass, did at the theatre door quarrel with certain poor boys, handicraft apprentices, and struck some of them, and lastly he with his sword wounded and maimed one of the boys upon the left hand, whereupon they assembled near fifteen hundred people. This Brown did very cunningly convey himself away, but he was taken after. At the end of December 1598, the Burbages had had enough of Allen's vacillations and demands, and took matters into their own hands. Allen appears to have believed that negotiations would continue, but Cuthbert had employed a carpenter, Peter Street, and twelve labourers to take the theatre apart, beam by beam. Over the next four days, the theatre was demolished, and any still useful items, particularly any wood, was removed to a site on the banks of the Thames in Southwark. Peter Street would use the materials to start the construction of a new theatre 
that was to be called the Globe. Obviously there is something sneaky about Cuthbert Burbage arranging for the work to be done during the Christmas period and in the depths of winter. He even went as far as to have the work started on a Sunday. Inevitably, Giles Allen commenced legal action against Cuthbert and his accomplices for trespass on the 20th of January 1599, which was realistically as soon as he could given the Christmas holiday season. As Burbage had almost certainly stopped paying the lease just before this, the building technically belonged to Allen, but in a counter case, Burbage successfully argued that the original requirement to spend £200 on the old buildings had been met, and therefore the original lease should have been extended to 31 years duration, and therefore Burbage was well within his rights to remove his property from the site at that time. It took almost a year to confirm that win, and Allen then tried to sue Burbage twice more. Neither case found any traction, and all matters concerning the theatre were concluded by 1602. Unfortunately, in all of this juicy legal detail, we don't find out much about what the theatre actually looked like. It was certainly a large timber building with a tiled roof, some limited use of ironwork, and with some walls plastered. Doors and wainscoting are also mentioned. The sketch plan of the common sewer shows that the theatre was an octagonal building. A painter was employed on a regular basis. It had a paved yard for a standing audience and galleries with seating. A collection point in the gallery is mentioned and a tiring house for the actors to prepare in. A traveller from Europe mentions that it had galleries and three levels and another describes it as an amphitheatre and really that's about it. Of the performers who acted there, we know that the company James Burbage belonged to, the Earl of Leicester's men, played there as did some other leading troops of the day, the Earl of Warwick's men, the Queen's men and the Lord Admiral's men but there's no listing of the plays performed or the frequency of performances there. The theatre really sounds like what we now think of as a fairly typical Elizabethan playhouse, and on balance that probably is the correct way to think about it, but we certainly can't be totally sure. We don't know how much of it was reused in the globe or which parts, but it seems a fair assumption that the larger and most valuable beams and spars would have been saved and therefore it's likely that the dimensions and shape of the theatre were very similar to the globe. And that's a sentence full of caveats which is important. Much as we would like to have full plans and descriptions of the early London playhouses, they just don't exist. In fact, perhaps the only safe thing to say in this regard is that there was no standard model for the Elizabethan playhouse and each included its own variations. Next time I'll be taking a look at the players who inhabited and worked in the theatres, the people who made the buildings and their stages come alive. It's a story of how amateurs became professionals and what their public thought of them. In the meantime, if you'd like to help support the podcast, there are additional episodes available on Patreon, which you can access for a small monthly fee. They cover a range of theatre history-related subjects from all of the periods that the main podcast has covered, and a few from more recent subjects too. If you are interested in any of these but can't stretch to a monthly commitment, I can offer a bespoke feed of specific episodes for a one-off payment. You can find details of this on the podcast website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. Once there, just follow the link to Patreon episodes on the main menu, where you'll find a full list and short description of all the available episodes. Thanks again to everyone who already supports the podcast, and to all of you for listening.
I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.